Hello, and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Tyler Smith, and today we'll be talking about Minute 65, which begins with Gorman continuing to mumble about falling back and ends with Vasquez firing uh, into the corridor. And Tyler Smith, back for the last day of the week. Thanks for sticking out the whole week with me, Tyler. Oh, thank you so much. I, it was, it's been a pleasure. And Kyle, you too. I guess, uh, Kyle Anderson, are you here? I'm here. Hello. Okay. Kyle, uh, thanks again for uh, giving us the whole week. It's been a pleasure. I, 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 what's great about a podcast like this is that it it allows you to, I mean, it seems obvious when you think about it, but uh, to pick apart parts of a movie that you like already that you maybe hadn't thought about in a, in a number of ways. And so uh, talking uh, as we have these last few episodes about this particular sequence, which is the breaking down of the, the military, uh, the, the Marine unit uh, has really given me a, a lot of, you know, fresh uh, perspective about those characters and what they meant to each other and everything like that. So it's, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm starting this fifth episode as sort of like a, a, you know, more thoughtful, more contemplative mood about the military, <laughs> even though I'm sure that will go away or the military in this movie, I should say, but um, especially in this one, because it's, you, we finally get to see in this minute, the essentially the complete collapse of everybody anybody who might have fallen in line still uh and and uh and the one in charge yeah it's true we almost get a whole sequence this week um in a way i mean we we don't get the very beginning of it and we definitely don't get the end of it but we do get that first couple acts maybe of this sequence where we where we get the uh, situation like the inciting the uh, inciting incident of you know them actually having to incinerate the colonists and and wake up the aliens to the entire breakdown of their whole structure uh, and then in this minute we get Ripley kicking into gear and taking us into the resolution of the sequence and and how they're actually going to get out of there so it's kind of nice when you get a, a tidy little it's not a completely tidy but a kind of tidy little week where you're able to talk about a specific theme for the entire time and kind of get to the bottom of it. Yeah, this one almost feels like an outsider because so much of it is is admittedly in the course of the movie a cool, you know, little sequence, but uh, of just Ripley driving the 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 APC around, and, and you sort of feel like well, this doesn't really fit with the other four that we talked about, even though it's it's the capper on it basically. Um, because a full half of this minute is basically just her getting control of the car and driving the car. True. Yeah, we'd actually, if uh, we don't, for most of this minute, like we are with Gorman and, Bo- and Burke and Ripley, and we actually don't see the Marines until the very end. So uh, structurally, you can tell like over these, these last few minutes, we are now, we've been watching Ripley watch the action. And really, when you think about it, uh, it's been, it has been, she's been kind of passive for 65 minutes. She, she took more of an active role with, uh, with Newt, but, um, but yeah, she did not want to go to the planet and then she was happy to like, just content to sit back while other people were doing things. Um, not because she's lazy, but because this is not a thing she wants to be a part of. Uh, and then it is in this moment that she finally that that the Ripley of aliens, the one that we think of when we think of of aliens, um, really emerges when she realizes like, OK, well, 
No one else is doing anything, so I guess I have to. And so it's this is an interesting fifth minute for us to be talking about because people have started to die. She has been witness to all of it and decides that she cannot just sit idly by anymore. If anything, if anything good is going to happen, it's going to have to come from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've yeah. talked a lot. Um, uh, I have talked a lot, at least throughout this uh, season, about sort of the awakening of Ripley, that, that she's kind of groggily waking up from this 57 years sleep, and she's awakening into a world where she's a fish out of water, and she's not really the character we knew from Alien for a long time. I, I think she kind of wakes up mostly when Newt appears. There's that moment where she snatches the flashlight and dives into the duct. And I feel like, okay, she woke up. That's where she finally woke up. But she's still been passive. You're right. She's still been passive since then as far as taking any kind of a role in this military operation. She's been somewhat more, a little bit more respected in her advisory role as they start to see these things they've never seen before. They start referring to her a little bit. But yeah, this minute we're getting her actually like literally taking the wheel, right? She's fully Ripley now. From now on, I don't think that we can, uh, there's any need to even really talk about Ripley waking up or coming into her own anymore because I think that here she's finally done it. And I also think that, uh, Kyle, you hinted at it in the last minute. I think it's partially kind of began as filling the void that Apone left. Mm-hmm. I think once he's the head was cut off with with Apone, she sort of automatically, both as a story function and then as a character function, she automatically just kind of fit into that role. She saw that nobody was going to make a decision, and she knew what decision had to be made. It was fairly obvious. So now she's literally, she's had it with Gorman's bullshit, and she's literally taking him by the collar and shaking him, saying, this is what has to be done. And again, he doesn't do it. He does not snap to. She literally says, God damn it, do something. Yeah. <laughs> and he can't do it. Uh, and I think what you were saying is exactly right. Like, she becomes the Ripley of this movie. And, and it's it's notable that when she decides, fine, I'm going to do something, the very first thing she does is put Newt in a in a, a chair and straps her in. Yeah. I have that note, too. I have it's, first order of business, take care of the kid. Yeah, which is which is the reason that she's uh, wants to do that. Because, you know, she doesn't care about these Marines. Other, and she's just like, you guys are stupid if you don't listen to me. And, and you know, they're out there. And she cares about them on a human level and doesn't necessarily want to see anybody die. And she knows what's what's to come. But it's it's the caring for Newt that drives her throughout the rest of the movie. And and then that transfers into I'm going to care about everybody else, too. And uh, because in the first movie, she's so by the book. I mean, she she's cares. She has a caring person. She she like clearly likes the other people that she's on board with. But. You know, she does the pragmatic thing and the by the book thing when, um, you know, everybody wants her to open the door to let uh, to let Kanan, I believe. Um, and she's like, no, we have to leave him in quarantine. That's just some we have to do it. Um, and in this movie, she's she's going actively against the book because now she's you know, she's got something to fight for. And, and it's and she doesn't want what happened before to happen again. And so I always like that moment when she's like, all right, sit here and and. Uh, we'll get you taken care of. And then Newt, of course, as they're going, she ducks under the chair because that's where Newt feels more comfortable. That's funny that you bring up that she wouldn't open the door in Alien because here she's making a door. You know, like it's like the complete (laughs) opposite. Um, Not only in her behavior, but literally what she does is the complete opposite. So, yeah, she's pushing around the by the book guy who is Gorman. And later on, she will have a confrontation with the paper pusher, which is Burke. 
uh, obviously Burke has ulterior motives, but it's, you know, now she's, she's becoming, you know, at the end of the first alien, she, she is the lone survivor. She has to, she has to step up in order to save herself. But in this one, she has to step up. She doesn't actually seem to care that much about herself anymore. Um, she's, she's stepping up to save Newt and by extension Hicks and then later, you know, everybody else. And she can't save everybody, but you know, Hicks and Bishop and Bishop basically seem like the ones that, you know, she's like, all right, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to bat for these people because they care about me and they're not evil and they're not stupid. And, and basically like, uh, yeah, she, it's, it's, it's such a great character moment. Um, the, the decision to, uh, to act. And especially because at the beginning on our first minute this week, she's sitting there watching, the the woman with the chest burster and she's clutching her own chest and and worrying like she's she's going inward and then by the end of this five minutes she's had to completely break out of that she's like there's more important things to worry about than than me being afraid um and it's it's great and you know um i was thinking about that moment where ripley grabs gorman and says do something and he's just like staring straight ahead. Now uh, he seems to be in some kind of shock. Uh, and I think, you know, this is kind of splitting hairs, but there's the difference between not being able to do something and not knowing what to do. I mean, this is a guy who's so by the book and so inexperienced that I think he literally does not know what to tell them to do. I mean, he did say here, like, uh, he says, you know, tell them to fall back now that it's too late. But, um, but the fact of him being cut off, because uh, he's so used to saying something and other people do it, that now the only thing he knows to do is talk. And now that he can't do that, he has no idea what to do. Um, and perhaps if he had more experience and was able to improvise a little bit, then he might know what to do in this situ- in this situation. Um, and so it's something that I find very interesting. Like if we want to, if we want to think in terms of James Cameron as somebody who uh, uh, is kind of making an indictment of the military, well, the military is kind of seen as Gorman, I would say, uh, in that it is. Yes, there are the grunts and that kind of thing, and, and I think he has a certain degree of affection for them. But I think Gorman is like the military-industrial complex. It has a system of orders a system of of rules and this is how things work and not everything is going to adhere to that as we you know again to talk about vietnam uh we have a very clear idea of what our enemy is and then if they are not that we really don't know what to do uh we can just keep going back to the book but that's going to fail us and so i think gorman is certainly an indictment of I guess the military mindset, uh, or I guess maybe not necessarily the mindset, but the structure of the military. Um, because if the roles were reversed and a was in charge and, uh, Gorman was the sergeant, although I guess I don't think he would ever do well in that role either. But if a were in charge, I think he would have a better idea of what to do and might've actually pulled them back the moment they realized they couldn't use their guns. And so uh, it's the Gorman character has always been interesting to me, and I think he's more rep, he's a more, more of a representation than an actual character. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think William Hope plays him very well, and I think it's it's important that he be so impotent at this moment um, 
just to show the failure, a, a failure of another institution. The failure of Gorman is the failure of this whole, this whole operation. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if he's representative of the military, he's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's the officer class, which are, yeah. he's, he's young, he's inexperienced. He only knows by the book because he's never had to, you know, uh, do any of it himself. And so, I mean, it, in all wars, um, that's that's something that happens. But you know, more historical wars than Vietnam. Like there's World War One, where literally the officers would have commandeered a chateau miles away, and right. are just issuing orders. So it's not quite like that. He's a little more in it than than that. But it's still that kind of mentality where it's like, I I sit back, you tell me what's going on, and I tell you what to do. And it's more like moving chess pieces around or moving you know stuff on a on a board and uh when it all goes to hell and he can't see any of it he he's completely ineffectual because all he knows is strategy quote unquote from the stuff that he's read and and you know the appearance of this creature that nobody takes seriously really until that moment uh just completely throws him for a loop and he's you know he, he can't even wrestle the controls away from ripley like he's such a he's such a nothing character and burke is even like just sit down <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like you've done enough here <laughs> it's like uh at gorman doesn't die for a little while but he may as well be dead at this point well i did want to point out before all of that that um you know, like you said, he's he's entranced, right? He's like completely impotent. He's kind of zoned out. He can't really respond to anything until Ripley actually cranks up the APC, and then he comes to life, right? And I was kind of wondering, no, how, this is different. Well, how do you guys interpret that? Is he upset? Uh, does he come to? I, I should say not just upset, but he actually snaps out of it and comes to life and responds to something for the first time in a while. Do you think that is because of her insubordinates, because she's taking action on her own? Or do you think it's because he knows that she's going to drive him into the danger? I don't know. It could be both. I think for a long time, I think I just took it as uh, this is him thinking this is still my operation Yeah. to the point that to the point that he even says, like, that's an order, you know, as though orders matter at all anymore. Um you know, this is a guy who is who is a military man. I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he's from a military family. Like this is there's a way of doing things, and he even though he himself would probably acknowledge that he's really ineffectual right now, there is still a chain of command. There's a way of doing things, and she is not following it. Yeah, I I agree. I t- I tend to think the same thing, but it just occurred to me while making notes. I'm like, you know, maybe he just doesn't want to go in there. Maybe that's why yeah. he really like jumps to it. I mean, would would he really, if it was just about you know the chain of command, would he really snap out of his trance so fast, or is he more like, oh, I don't want to go in there. I know that's where you're taking us. I don't know. I think there's both ways to look at it. But you're probably it's probably just the um, military man, the officer. The, I'm the boss here, and this is the first time anyone's like gone against him at this level, like. This close in this close of quarters, at least, where he could actually get up and do something about it. Yeah, but I did want to talk about Burke. I talked about it a little bit in the last minute, but um, Paul Reiser's performance here as Burke, while all of this high drama is going on, uh, is very curious to me. And again, I think we're going to be informed by what we know about Burke in later minutes. But it, it sort of reminds me as, as Ripley is like 
emoting <laughs> so highly, grabbing Gorin by the collar, and it's just very theatrical. It actually reminds me, the way Paul Reiser's acting, of a play I saw one time in Chicago by this um, theater group called The Hypocrites. I was in Chicago. We went to see this performance of Frankenstein by this theater group, and it was one of those immersive uh, theater experiences. Have you guys ever been to one of those where you're actually the, – the stage is actually – where you sit and the play is happening while you're on the in the set basically while it's going on and uh i don't know if you guys have ever experienced that before but it's very interesting but you do kind of you can go up and stand next to the actors and watch them perform um and they and they just ignore you and uh you know if action takes place they kind of point at you to know that they're coming at you towards you and you get up and move and so on but what paul reiser's doing here he kind of seems like he's not really a part of what's happening here. It seems as though he's much more of a very close quartered, like audience member to this theater that's going on. Do you guys see? I don't know how closely you scrutinize the performance here, but Tyler, you're the actor here. Like, tell me your picture. Well, look, drawing on my status uh, as winner of Best Actor, uh, State of Missouri, uh, in t- the year 2000. Um, I will say, yeah, it's it's definitely a thing that I've gotten. It's it's a function of who Gorman is and the the performance. So I think it's in both. But yeah, I think it's it's hard to know exactly what he, we we know that he has plans, but it's hard to know exactly when those plans come in. Like I don't know if he. I don't know if he always planned, like from the moment they set foot on the planet, I don't know if he planned on trying to get a face hugger on somebody um, or is he just kind of making it up as, as he goes along. Um, but at, I think he did not see himself as being in this level of danger. Um, he saw himself as an observer, maybe as an advisor, as a representation, as representative for the company. Um, and so I think he sees himself at a distance and so in this moment, not unlike Ripley, I mean, it's, it's, there were the Marines and then there were Burke and Ri- there was Burke and Ripley. And I think he sees her making a decision and I think it's, I won't say inspires him, but I think he realizes at that moment, like, okay, all hands on deck, I'm going to need to do something. And I wouldn't be surprised if he starts really making a plan then once he sees that she is going to she's going to be making decisions that puts her in harm's way. Um, maybe that is a, an opportunity for him. So, mm-hmm. and it, and it's a way to get, to kind of follow her lead and get more on her side. Like he, he puts Gorman down and he says, you had your chance Gorman, which means, Hey, I'm siding with, I'm siding with Ripley and she just observed it. This is maybe for her benefit. And it could, it could also be frustration uh, on his part. Like he was assured by Gorman that the Marines were going to be fine and they are not. And so now he is kind of in danger as well. And so he could be frustrated with Gorman, but maybe playing that up for Ripley's benefit so that he can get closer to her. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on with the character and with the performance, but you know, I think as a kid, I was able to, I think I ascribed more pure motives to Gorman, uh, to, to Burke in this moment. Uh, and it just seemed like a guy who was fed up and his, he was mirroring, uh, Ripley's frustration. Yeah. He's, he's so underplayed. Paul Reiser is yeah. you know, throughout most of the movie. And, uh, and, and this, yeah, like you, you guys both were saying, like he, he's an observer to the point where like even those earlier shots in earlier minutes of, 
Gorman and Ripley sitting next to him, like Burke is just kind of there in the background. Like he's he's not framed up as like an important, but it's not like a three shot. It's a two shot and he's just there. And and he kind of I, I always take it now knowing, you know, where he goes later on in the movie um, that he he's watching and seeing what happens. And now he knows O'Gorman's useless. I could I could kind of. I'm already trying to get on Ripley's side. She's the only one who's worked, you know, seen this creature before. And she seems like she is proactive about it. She's going to get me closer to getting what I need, even though she thinks ultimately they're going to leave. Um, and so he ha- he's trying to, you know, use what she is doing to his advantage, which he tries to up until they find him out. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I'm I'm always watching Paul Reiser when I go back and watch this movie, and he's 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 underplaying it, but he's also always present, like he's looking around. He's not just like you know a nothing in the scene. And I always like that he's sort of he he's thinking. He's he's the the wheels are turning always, even if he's not saying anything. Um, yeah, really good performance, I think, from a stand up comedian. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think everybody's pretty much in full agreement about Paul Reiser. He's got nothing but praise on this show so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, praise for the casting of him in the first place, the little countercasting that you kind of get with him to his performance and with very little experience, mainly, you know, Diner and Beverly Hills Cop, and that's about it. And uh, yeah, it's a surprising performance in a lot of ways. I mean, it's always been there for me. I think this is maybe the second thing I ever saw him in. I'm pretty sure I saw him in uh, My Two Dads first, but. Um, yeah, this is spot on performance. It's just, I, I, watching it this closely, like reading his eyes and, and then feeding in all of that information that you know about him from later. It's like, what is he, the wheels are turning. You're right. I'm not sure what exactly they're turning for, like what exactly he's getting at, but it's good. That makes for a good performance. You should be uh, with him, especially in this uh, point in the movie, you should be uncertain of him, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, so I'm I'm looking at uh, the the frame here, and I'm looking at frame. I'm looking at second forty three within this minute, um, and it's interesting because it's after he has sat Gorman down, and then he turns, but he's not looking out the window. He's looking at Ripley. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's interesting because that speak that might speak to another reason that he puts Gorman aside. It's almost like you're blocking the view. I am paying close attention to her. I want to see what choices she makes. I am watching her on my own behalf and on behalf of the company. And I want to see what she is doing in this situation that I might be able to exploit. Um, And you are getting in the way. Like you are not really serving any function as a Marine. So now you just need to sit down and so that I can see what she's going to do. So he's observing. He was observing the whole situation. I think now he's gone to just observing her. Yeah, I actually have the note that um, he, you could have replaced the line. You had your chance, Gorman, with, you know, sit down, Gorman. I want to see how this plays out. Yeah. Because he kind of has that look on his eye, like, I got to see where this is going. And that's that's kind of maybe I read a little bit into the earlier part of this minute, too, with, with that performance. Because it does seem like he's just kind of observing. He's like a, a spectator a little bit. Even though he's deep inside the scene, he's also extremely curious about what Ripley's doing. And how it's going to play out. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of had the same note about that. So I'm trying to think if there's – I mean, I recognize that we probably should talk about the uh, the car – what is it, the APC? Yeah. Um, which uh, – I'll say this. 
I recognize that is this is this a model or is this the actual thing? I feel the, like the actual thing doesn't drive quite fast. No, enough to this is definitely a model, and I don't even have to do any. I didn't even actually look it up. I mean, to me, it's pretty clear. But uh, it lo- I think it looks really good for oh, a, it's for a model. Yeah, it's yeah, really great. It's great. Um, I, I think it's this whole set and everything is, is beautiful. And I, I was saying a couple of weeks ago, I've kind of found out since that it's not true, but I was just. It was more just an impression I got that all of this, well, the entry of the APC into this facility really reminds me of the of the Batmobile going into Axis Chemicals to destroy it in Batman, and you kind of get this is a lot more this is a lot more um, dynamic, I guess, of a scene than that is. Where in that one he just pretty much drives in, drops some bombs, turns around, and drives out. Here we get a lot more action with the car, but it still kind of makes me think of the of a Batmobile kind of situation, and, and then. The model, like um, Pinewood Studios set uh, or model combination that you get in Batman with the Anton First uh, set design there. Uh, I feel like this is a bit of a predecessor to it, but that's really just an impression I get. But it excites me. I mean, Batman, the 89 Batman, the design elements of it especially are something that I always go back to if anything reminds me of them i always like to bring it up but yeah i love this this apc model the real thing's cool uh, as unpractical as it might actually be but seeing it in action here makes you forget about all the fact that it's so sits a little too low to the ground to maybe do some of the things that it does but anyway sure and because of what's happening in the scene uh it, it feels a lot more exciting because when you're actually seeing just the model shots it's it's a you know a very low car with big wheels running into walls and stuff right it doesn't look maybe as majestic as it did, but with the music and knowing that uh, this is ripley taking charge and all this stuff uh it, it has this kind of grandeur to it um the wall you know the the set that it's driving on doesn't necessarily look all that cool but it's like it's like you know that action is happening and and um you know that ripley is being heroic and everything like that and it's finally you know working as after we've just watched five minutes of of our quote-unquote heroes getting slaughtered and making the wrong choices like it's cool it's cool and i think that that's like that's the that's what cameron does well is to take what he has even if it's just kind of an okay model shot and in context and with music and through sigourney weavers and and paul reiser's great performances on the interior it makes it kind of a cool action action sequence and it does yeah it comes across really well even though it's just a little tiny car. Well, yeah, and this has been brought up on the show before, but it's kind of a sad thing about James Cameron is that he was so brilliant with model work. Like even when, you know, we talked about it way back when the drop ship first drops off the APC and how there are a couple of moments, kind of uh, Jerry Anderson looking Thunderbirds moments there with the model mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, it's, it looks a little phony, but he knows exactly when to cut away to Pharaoh in the cockpit or um, cut away to a bishop driving the APC out of the dropship. If you cut at the right spot, you don't have time to really think. If you're watching the movie in actual time and not minute by minute, you don't have time to think about the models and how maybe they're a little phony looking. And I think that's true here too, the way he's combining the sound with the you know musics. And, and like you said, shows how, how good he was at, dealing with models and, and it makes it sad that he got so quickly into the CGI world afterwards that I, I don't think he, I think he, 
in a lot of ways, I think he spends too much time on the effects with when his CGI work. Obviously, now with Avatar, that goes without saying. Years but, and years. <laughs> not only years and years of, spe- but spending too much time on screen, like not cutting away from things properly, like not like basically saying, "I I think this looks beautiful, and you're going to like it too." And and a lot of times, it's like, "No, nah, it doesn't look good. it doesn't look real to me." Um, manipulate me a little bit, please. You know what I mean? So with the model shots, he knew how to manipulate. And I think he learned a lot from John Carpenter when he was working with him and no doubt with Corman as well, uh, how to do this, like how to make these low budget effects look really good. And and I think he was actually better at that than he's ever been with CGI, but that's just me. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think this movie is a great example of it. Um, and, and, not merely the model work, but also what is required to sell it. You know, uh, I recognize that I'm about to talk about just the basics of editing here, but you know, anytime, anytime the, the, the model like bangs against a wall, it cuts inside to see the internal effects of that. Mm -hmm. And so when you see humans bouncing around inside and it, like your mind links these two things, uh, and it actually, by by putting these two things together and seeing what is real and full sized and human with what is not, uh, it it just makes you buy the uh, it makes you buy the model a lot more. Um, you know there are, there are moments in uh, like Tim Burton's Batman where there is a clear model um, of like the Batwing crashing uh, in onto a Gotham City street. And it definitely looks like a model, a really detailed one, and the street as well has been recreated, um, and it looks very detailed, but it is unquestionably a model, whereas I feel like if Tim Burton had been uh, quite uh, skilled enough to understand that, no, 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 we're going to need to cut back and forth constantly and see Batman in the Batwing as it is crashing and sliding along the pavement uh, and... If you do that, or maybe show people on the street as it goes by, if you do that, uh, it sells the effect a lot better. And I think he just has a real instinct and a real knack for that. And I think that's also a function of the editing because you have to time it out just right. And this sequence, I think, you know, as a kid, I don't think I questioned it at all. That uh, I don't think it occurred to me that this might be a model. I know now, uh, but even then I had to be like, I think it, I'm pretty sure it's this, but. Maybe not, um, because the model also looks big. It looks sizable. Uh, but that, again, another but, but that could be because I am, because the, the shots of the, the people inside are adding context to it and allowing me to see it the way Cameron wants me to see it. Agreed. Yeah, that's what I'm, yeah, that's where his strong suit was then. I think you're right. He just knew exactly how to sell anything through all these filmmaking techniques, working in every department of all the movies that he worked on with Roger Corman and John Carpenter has to help. He just knows every department's job and he knows what that takes in any given frame of the movie to sell whatever he's trying to sell. So yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, I don't have anything else for this minute or this week. Uh, Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about? I think the the just the very last thing that I would mention is is at the end of this uh, minute we see uh, Hicks dragging Hudson along while he's got his his shotgun out and Hudson appears to be wounded and 
this shot looks very Vietnam to me. Um, just like, and, and it's a, I think it's also a very crucial, like army shot. Like these might be Marines in the future. Uh, but this moment is kind of, this image is kind of iconic for all wars, which is, you know, the brothers in arms and all that. And one has been injured and the other is dragging him along. Uh, and this moment just reminded me of that. Like if this is meant to be Vietnam, then this moment really seems like, like it's taken out of an actual war because undoubtedly this happens in, in every war and we've seen it in a number of war movies. And this adds a certain degree of uh, legitimacy to this being a, a sort of Vietnam allegory. So that was all. All right. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a image that now that I'm looking at it, you're right. But I think it kind of slipped past me. And that could be to its credit that it didn't really occur to me because he's immersed us in this war movie here. And maybe I'm not even noticing necessarily the iconic imagery that I could have recognized from somewhere else. Because I'm like, yeah, you, you, you've got me in a war movie here. I'm gonna, I expect to see things like this. So, But it's a good catch. All right. Well, Kyle, you want to remind everyone one last time where they can find you online. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at functional nerd. You can read everything that I write on nerdist.com. Um, uh, I haven't plugged it at all yet, but I do a column once a week called schlock and awe about the kind of obscure or weird genre films of the past. Or at this point, I've, I'm close to 200 <laughs> columns. I just write about movies. I like to write about, um, uh, I also do a podcast called Doctor Who The Writer's Room about the writing of Doctor Who for the first 26 seasons. And uh, I do a podcast called The Classic Horror Cast, where once a month uh, me and some friends talk about the uh, just a, a classic horror movie that we like. Um, so you can listen to all those on uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. And Tyler, did you have anything you wanted to plug today? Uh, yeah, you can uh, check me out at uh, battleshippretension.com. It's a, a movie-related podcast that's been running for well over 10 years at this point. Uh, and then I also have another podcast called More Than One Lesson, which is a movie discussion from a Christian point of view. So please keep that in mind if you check it out. Uh, and then I also I put out a book called Worth Watching, which is a collection of reviews and essays that I've written over the years. You can get that at worthwatchingbook.com. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Tyler Pretension or at uh, More Lessons. I will point out to the listeners, if uh, you want to head over to battleshippretension.com, the, Tyler and David did do a series of like a marathon series, I think of, of alien commentaries. So all of the first four films, alien uh, through alien resurrection, they have commentaries over there that you can uh, buy from them. And they're really good. I've got the first two. So come over and check those out. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's uh, very helpful. I forgot to, to mention that. Yes. And so aliens, uh, the people that we have with us commenting is uh, you've got actor Pat Healy, you have comedian Wayne Fetterman, and then you have uh, writer and blogger uh, uh, Aaron Newworth. And so, uh, and I will say specifically that uh, Wayne Fetterman talking about aliens is one of the funniest things you will ever hear. He has a, a, a favorite line that is nobody's favorite line. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's you know a writing assistant could have actually written that line, and that be the only line that was included in the film of theirs, and that would not be their favorite line. <laughs> well if you want to find out what that line is you're going to have to go over and grab those commentaries off battleshippretension.com absolutely all right well you can find us at alienminute.com at uh, on twitter at alien minute pod or on instagram at alien minute podcast you can come over to our t public page 
and get your uh, commemorative uh, memorial Colonial Marines T-shirts uh, that we have over there. Uh, we, we have one for Frost. Um, we don't have one for Dietrich. I'm not sure if she had a design on her <laughs> uniform. But anyway, get one for Frost. Uh, you know, rest in peace. And also, uh, at the end of the week, we like to thank uh, Alex and Pete over at the Star Wars Minute one more time. Thanks a lot, guys, for doing Star Wars Minute and loaning us uh, this format. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Minute 65. We'll see you next week for Minute 66.